Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. To enjoy things unironically can be a small act of resistance to the soul-deadening forces of the modern world and have profound spiritual repercussions. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. You're joining me for my series on my new book, Aggressively Happy. And this week we are talking about chapter, I think it's chapter four, Enjoy Things Unironically. And I have the great pleasure of inviting a friend on to chat with me today about the themes in this chapter. And in a way, I feel like our friendship over the last um, six years has all been building up to this episode in a way. So welcome on the show, Bose Harrington. Hello. Um, So, Bose, we have so much to talk about today. As you said, so much to vent about, so much to enthuse about. Um, but before we do that, can you give people a little portrait of yourself, what you do, why they might know who you are from a distance, and uh, what you love? Um, my name is Bose. I run a Twitter account, Sketches by Bose, the Library Owl, where I tweet about books and whimsy and faith and culture, and it's gotten some followers, and I also write middle grade novels and mystery novels yes and by it's got some followers he means uh you know several hundred thousand followers um i um i can't i'm trying to think of i think we tell this story every time we talk but when do you first remember encountering each other because my first memory of you was i tweeted something about uh simon and garfunkel and and uh rainy days and you commented back also being enthusiastic about Simon and Garfunkel and Rainy Days. And that's like one of my first memories of you. Uh, what's But what is your memory of how we encountered each other on the internet? You were working in Colorado Springs for a magazine and you asked me to write an essay for you. And I panicked and spent like a month writing the essay and then didn't ever turn it in. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. That's, that's right. Book. <laughs> That's right. That was pre-grad school, pre, pre-PhD for me. So, um, but we kind of encountered each other through, through Twitter and um, and through a mutual enjoyment of of many things. Uh, we both love mystery novels. We both love whimsy. But I think most fundamentally, we both have kind of a sense that the world ought to be approached in a posture of wonder and delight. Mm-hmm and enjoyment. Um, a Something which has united us, but has also occasionally caused um, angst. Controversy. Uh, controversy on Twitter. Um, okay, so, Bose, I think there's kind of a dual side of this. A lot of people are drawn to that whimsy and that delight, and yet also it sometimes creates um, controversy confusingly it's really weird isn't it when you think about it like <laughs> why does whimsy and delight and enjoyment create this this huge uh vitriol sometimes um so what do you think why are people drawn to whimsy and delight and and you're kind of kind of how we both tweet and then why does it cause such angst it's an interesting question because 
I noticed that both of our accounts sort of took off around 2017 and 2018. And if you think about where things were historically and politically, there was, um, it seemed like um, everybody online was mad about something. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but there was this pressure to be mad about things. Mm-hmm. And it, it was almost like if you weren't upset and tweeting about how upset you were all the time, you were singing. <laughs> And there was this slogan that was going around that said, silence equals violence. And I, I didn't want to be violent, but I also didn't want to contribute to the rage and just be saying the same things that everyone else was saying. So I thought, you know, I bet there's a niche for people who don't want to be oppressed by this all the time and want something fun and lighthearted. So I started tweeting things that were fun and lighthearted. And a lot of people liked that and a lot of people didn't. And I got unfollowed and blocked by a lot of people. And it was a very strange reaction because I thought, this is not offending anyone. This is the least offensive account. And your account's very inoffensive. People got quite angry about things that you were tweeting. That yeah. should not have provoked kind of ire. I know. Well, and we both noticed that people seem to have calmed down a little bit over the last year. Um, with it, at least some of the, the reactionary kind of accounts. But... Um, yeah, I, I had I noticed a similar thing and I, I remember having a conversation with my brother Nathan and saying that there are some accounts, but also there was just this kind of vibe that it was important to be professionally indignant. Do you know what I mean? That you were just kind of yeah. always uh, on the hunt, uh, anxious, uh, angry. And I, I, I felt like it didn't do any good for me to do that because there's already enough enough people on the internet who are in, indignant about various things, and it's not that. I mean, both of us have convictions. We both have things that we're uh, that we we would get indignant about. Um, I'll say this: I I'm all for advocating for the voiceless and for speaking out against injustice. Yes. I think that's important, but um, it felt like people thought they were doing that, but they weren't really doing that. They were just ineffectually raging. Well, and that's the thing I realized is like, I will, I'm happy to lose followers over a conviction, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, supporting something I care about. Um, but sometimes it just feels, it is that kind of feeling that I think the main thing I object to is the feeling that you can't care about justice and care about those things. And also sometimes really enjoy scones or, you know, reading a book that you like. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's the more pernicious thing to me, I think, is the sense that you must always be hypervigilant, indignant, angry. And if you're not, then you are somehow guilty or you don't care about justice or you don't care about the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so just for people who are listening to this going, what in the world are they talking about? I'll give an example of a time that someone got really angry at me. And then you can give an example of some of the kind of strange anger directed mm-hmm. towards your account. So I talk about this in the book, but during the lockdown, I... Um, I I had a period where I tried to get good at bread baking. Now, I have to admit, I never got very good at bread baking. My mom is definitely still the maestro of bread baking. But I had this lovely red Dutch oven, which I actually don't have now, Bose. It's very sad because I, I gave it to one of my friends when I moved because I thought I, thought I was going to be moving internationally. So um, mm-hmm. I need to replace someday my, my red um, Dutch oven. But I... I had this Dutch oven and I was experimenting with bread baking and did it one time and it was really bad. And I did it another time and I was just, during this process, I was in awe of the fact, like bread baking is very cool. You you put in, you know, the yeast and then you leave it to rise by a warm place and it triples in size, which is just completely cool. Like I, I and so I tweeted and said something about it 
um, you know, bread baking is magical. I, it was just like a, a, a bread baking, you know, appreciator tweet. It wasn't, you know, anything profound. And I got dogpiled by about like 10 accounts <clears throat> that were all like, could you just be, could you just not be this way? And I was like, uh, well, actually, I think it started with three angry faces, to which I just responded with a question mark, because I was like, why are they angry at this tweet? And then there were all these people, and they were all mad, and I was, tr I, I was trying to just figure out why they were mad. And I think some of them thought that somehow I was making money off of the tweet, which was interesting. Um, but then, which I was not. Um, but then, I think most of them were just, they seemed to just be mad that I was enjoying life like it's I think that was they found it annoying that I was enjoying bread baking um and so that was this example of you know it's this weird thing on the internet where you can just be going along your merry way being happy and then someone can just be irritated with you um and that's perhaps a, a sin of the internet but I think it's something that happens in life more generally too that people who kind of want to enjoy and be thankful can kind of feel slapped down like you know you shouldn't be you shouldn't be too earnest. You shouldn't be too open-hearted. You shouldn't enjoy bread baking too much. So, um, do you have any examples of that in your own tweeting life? Yeah, when I started tweeting about books and and just enjoying life really regularly, I started getting pushback from two groups. One of them was the exvangelicals who had gotten really into social justice, which I fully support. Mm -hmm. But they were like, um, "You, you're not." advocating for the right causes you're talking about things that are frivolous and, and whimsical and those aren't real things those aren't things that matter and it felt very it felt very puritanical and you talk about this in mm -hmm. your chapter how there's this tiny puritan inside all of us that says you can't do that that's that's nonsense it's a waste mm -hmm. and uh, it, it's it's almost gnostic in a way mm -hmm. it's um but and there was another group it was um some uh, some of my fellow Catholics got really upset, and I'm not sure why exactly. I still don't know. But they were they were like sending me pictures of guillotines, implying that they wanted me to be beheaded. It got really extreme and intense, and I was just posting like jokes about Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. So I felt like the, the guillotine pictures were really unwarranted and <laughs> overreaction. You know? One and, might say, uh, yeah, and like it was. It was especially inexplicable coming from from people who were very vocal about their faith and were always going on about how they were the, the best Christians on Twitter mm -hmm. and they, they got profiled in the New York Times because they were talking about what great Christians they were. And <laughs> and so and so I, I had this panic attack for about six months and I was like, Am I a bad Christian because I'm tweeting about Alice in Wonderland and Agatha Christie? <laughs> Like, is there something wrong with me? Because I've got 20 passionate Christians in my mentions telling me that I'm a bad person. Should I be listening to them? Because it seems like all the, the other Christians are saying that. And so I had a crisis of faith. But then they attacked you. And in a weird way, it made me feel better. Because I was like, you know, I know she hasn't done anything wrong. She's fine. So if they're attacking her, then they probably don't have a reason to be attacking me either. Uh, well, I feel like if nothing else, it's just a cautionary tale to people to say, beware of Twitter, it can be, be a dangerous yes. place. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, it's really odd. So, you know, both of us, you know, when we're talking about this, there's kind of a sense of a little bit of 
confusion about where the vitriol comes from. Also, I think it's particularly ironic that your fellow Catholics would be sending you guillotines from the French Revolution, given the whole, you know... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> given what they did to priests. Yeah, given what they did to Catholics in general. Um, but, yeah, and I tried to, in this chapter, kind of think about what are some of the reasons that people are, have this reaction, this kind of angst towards um, towards enjoyment, towards whimsy, towards, I think, really towards things that aren't of, in a sense, aren't of like high, like high stakes things. Why do people have such a negative reaction to, to enjoyment of low stakes things in a way? And of course, I think they're, they're high stakes in many ways. But you know, you know, where does this kind of negative reaction come from? I, I took a stab at it the chapter, but where, where, where do you think some of this discomfort with enjoyment and whimsy comes from? I'll tell you a story. When I was in high school, ages ago, I knew a girl named Danielle, and I thought we were friends, but she posted <laughs> she posted her away message, some poetry, and it was really self-deprecating, and um, I, being clueless and sensitive, not knowing it was lyrics to a Green Day song, I got really worried and thought, she must be suicidal, um, <laughs> she, she's thinking about killing herself, and so I would go into German class every day, and I would say, Danielle, the world is such an amazing place. Everything mm -hmm. is so beautiful. Don't you? Are you just astonished by the mirror of life? And it was so weird because she would just sit there like I wasn't even present, like I didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And and at the end of class, I would get up and talk to her, and she would brush past me and walk out of the room. It's like I wasn't there. And so finally, I confronted her because I was so hurt. I was no one had ever treated me like that. And I confronted her on instant messenger, and I said. Is there a reason why you're ignoring me? And she said, I just don't get it. You're so happy. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned. I learned from that experience that some people just really, really don't like happy people. Mm -hmm. And you talk about this in your chapter. You, you noticed that there's kind of a taxonomy of mm -hmm. haters. And the taxonomy is the cynics and Puritans. Mm -hmm. And I would say that she was a cynic. She was in kind of an emo phase, which hopefully she's grown out of. And, uh, <laughs> and then there's the, the Puritans, the people like we encountered on Twitter who who feel like if you're not talking about religion or justice or whatever their particular thing is, then we don't want to associate with you. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And the thing that I think because this could sound very us-them, but the thing that I often feel you know misunderstood about on Twitter or whenever we encounter these kinds of things is I think both of us are happy people but largely by cultivation and by choice you know what I mean it's not it's not that our you know um, that your life has been particularly easy or that you don't <laughs> that you don't have um, you don't have convictions or things that do make you worried or angry or or whatever so uh, so say a little bit about that how can happiness co coexist are, how, how does your, because I know this for me, but how does your outlook on life um, coexist with, yes, life actually is difficult and, and that kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's funny you say that because I, I think I was telling someone a few days ago that I feel like you and I both have a predisposition to be sort of melancholy. Mm -hmm. And we've counteracted that natural tendency by actively cultivating joy and wonder and seeking out things to be amazed by. And uh, I think some people don't realize you can do that. 
I, I was sort of notorious in college for going around and telling people <laughs> I just discovered stoicism. And I would go around and I would I would take people by the shoulders and say, did you know that you can choose to be happy? <laughs> and it was very intense. But that's something that we've both done. And I think maybe people who are not as far along and are sort of uh, unhappy with their lives and don't know how to not be happy with their lives um, – see us and are sort of resentful of the fact that how can these two people be so in awe of things, so astonished by everything when there's so much bad in the world? You know, I think an element of it, too, is that I think part of the reason both of us have a tendency towards melancholy is that I've always felt that I was fairly, one of my, my goddaughter said to me once, you're very porous, um, you know, that... I'm like a sponge. Things kind of, I'm very open to the world and very sensitive. You use that word. And I think people use sensitive um, in kind of an odd way. Yeah, but if you think about, if you think about sensitivity, like uh, a sensitive monitor is something which is sensitive to things in the world, whether it's chemicals or whatever. So I always have felt, and I think this is true for you, that Mm -hmm. I'm fairly sensitive to life, sensitive to beauty, Um, and so the melancholy actually comes from the fact that, like, if you are sensitive, then you feel a lot of the sadnesses and the injustices of the world very deeply. Um, but I think that that's a, that's, that's just being human, right? That's not particularly special, right? We all are sensitive to the world. We're all sensitive to, to pains and sufferings, but that sensitivity feels like a vulnerability. And so I think a lot of people would rather kind of turn down the vulnerability and turn down the sim- the sensitivity. Um, mm-hmm. And I think often that comes with a reduction of pain sensitivity and a reduction of enjoyment and wonder and delight. And, nice. and I, yeah. And I, I think, which is something I'm often tempted towards. Like I think for both of us that, mm-hmm. you know, happiness, wonder, amazement, it comes from, it's, it's a, it, you know, in stoicism, it's a practice. You know, you don't just zap yourself with happiness. You you practice looking at the world with awe. You practice being being grateful. You practice kind of an openness towards the world. And so for me, that means that sometimes I am very sad. But because I have made myself willing to be very sad, I've also made myself willing to be very happy. Um, and so I think a lot of it comes from, and I talk about this in the chapter, um, a fear of vulnerability and a kind of anxiety that we can't control the whole world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a certain joy in allowing yourself the capacity to feel intense emotions, even if those emotions are not always pleasant, because um, you, can, you can feel a certain catharsis in, in watching a movie or having a good cry that a person mm-hmm. who's numb who is woefully numb to themselves can't experience. And then there are days when you're not as sad and you you start looking around at things and being astonished. G.K. Chesterton has this great line where he says, the whole purpose of the artistic and spiritual life is to dig for the submerged sunrise of wonder so that mm. a man sitting in a chair might suddenly realize that he was alive and be happy. Hmm. I love that. I love that so much. So, so Bose... <coughs> Pardon, I'm still recovering from this mysterious illness. Um, why then do you think enjoying things unironically is important? Why is it a part of that that journey that Chesterton describes of sitting in your chair and realizing your life? I mean, I think 
this is something that the the inklings sort of brought more into the Christian tradition. I don't know how present it was before, mm-hmm. but we have this sense from MacDonald and Chesterton and Tolkien and Lewis that there is actually a spiritual value, a spiritual importance to enjoying things, to enjoying fairy tales, for example, or, mm-hmm. or reading a good book or learning a language. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, like... I think all of us who have been affected by the inklings and by their writings in some ways feel this desire to to love things, to enjoy things. And uh, but what one thing that really helped me was when the the fellow Catholics were attacking on Twitter <laughs> was that uh, I started digging through and trying to find real theological basis for my mm-hmm. joy, for my sense of wonder. And I came across this concept that is discussed in Judaism called mm-hmm. radical amazement. And mm-hmm. it was promoted in the the 60s, most famously by Rabbi Abraham Heschel. And if mm-hmm. you don't know who Heschel was, Heschel was this astonishing person and teacher who he was born in 1908 and he was nearly killed by Hitler. But he managed to escape from Poland after being deported there and went to London. And from there, he found his way to the United States, where he became involved in the civil rights movement um, and marched alongside Martin Luther King. So he was someone who knew how to enjoy life, who was grateful, but also was uh, prominent in the fight for social justice. But he... In his books, for example, The Prophets, he talks at length about how the root of all religion, the root of faith, is the capacity to be astonished, is wonder. Mm-hmm. And he says that um, for the Jewish people, for example, um, religion began at Mount Sinai, and what happened at Mount Sinai was a real encounter with God that provoked a sense of wonder in the ancient Israelites, and then that continued to happen during the time of the prophets. The prophets Mm. were continuously being astonished by revelations of the divine. And he says this, and I think it's so beautiful, I'm going to quote it at length. He says, (laughs) the surest way to suppress our ability to understand the meaning of God and the importance of worship is to take things for granted. Indifference to the sublime wonder of living is the root of sin. Wonder or radical amazement is the chief characteristic of the religious man's attitude toward history and nature. One attitude is alien to his spirit, taking things for granted, regarding events as a natural course of things. To find an approximate cause of a phenomenon is no answer to his ultimate wonder. He knows there are laws that regulate the course of natural processes. He's aware of the regularity and pattern of things. However, such knowledge fails to mitigate his sense of perpetual surprise at the Mm -hmm. fact that there are facts at all. As civilization advances, the sense of wonder declines. Such decline is an alarming symptom of our state of mind. Mankind will not perish for want of information, but only for want of appreciation. The beginning of our happiness lies in the understanding that life without wonder is not worth living. What we lack is not a will to believe, but a will to wonder. Hmm. And so it was deeply encouraging to be reading the words of this rabbi and to go, oh, this is actually a part of an important theological tradition. This is something that is taught in the Bible. The Bible is full of people experiencing God and encountering wonder. Mm-hmm. And so to 
to be a Christian, to say you can't be amazed by things, you can't be in awe, is to sort of deny the roots of your own faith. Mm. Well, and I think that part of that comes from a very simple recognition that God has created the world and the world is good. And so that um, one of uh, a dear a dear faculty member at St. Andrews who, who died this last fall, uh, Chris Schwill, used to talk about disclosure experiences, which is very similar to what you're describing, which is this sense that the Christian faith, that all of us live in the world based on these kind of moments where something is disclosed to us. And the, the Christian faith is based on God disclosing himself to us and that orienting us in the world. Um, but I believe that all of creation has God's fingerprints in it. It has God's presence, God's goodness, God's upholding grace within it. And that all of creation can disclose God to us and that we can be amazed by it and that it can shape how we live. And I think what, what Heschel is describing, and I will add on to this an addendum of, yes, I also love Heschel. This is one of our, one of Bose's and my, my many uh, mutual, um, obsessions we got into momentarily for actually and often we get into them at like separately like we don't tell each other i'm really into abraham heschel right now um and then we discover it um but what he's describing is kind of the capacity to to be astonished by god's revelation of himself to us but also just by the the gratuitous beauty of the world that the world itself is always disclosing goodness to us uh, God's goodness to us, and that we have to be in a posture where we can delight in that and 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 be in awe of that. And I actually think that that's to me a root of. I think that's the root from which kind of an energy to protect, to seek justice, to to change the world comes from, because often um, what I sense in our world is this kind of always a capacity to see what is evil or to know when things are bad. But the only way we kind of, you know, this is, this is a very um, perhaps uh, shop-worn slogan, but the only way we know what a crooked line is is because we have an idea of a straight line. But the only way we know that injustice is bad, that depriving children is bad, that, that lives spent in anxiety and worry and fear is bad is because we know that we're meant for more than that. We know that we're meant for beauty and goodness and gentleness, for wonder and amazement. And so I actually think cultivating that sense of awe, of openness, of astonishment, of delight is central to um, to being someone who is a, a brave warrior for the world and for goodness and for justice, as was very definitely uh, demonstrated in Heschel's life because he, he, he was in the best sense of the term, a social justice warrior uh, in his time and in his day. Um, so I actually think that it, this is not frivolous. Far from being frivolous, cultivating a open, gentle, loving heart towards the world through enjoying things is a part of falling in love with God's goodness in the world and becoming someone who is energized to protect it. There's this great story. It's a Zen Buddhist parable that I came across in college. There's a man, and he he was walking along in the woods, and he realized he was being pursued by a tiger. Mm -hmm. So he started running, and he came to the edge of a cliff, and the tiger was just a few paces behind him. And he realized his only way 
to escape was to, to somehow clamber down the cliff. So he begins climbing down the cliff, and about midway through, he reaches a clump of bushes, and there are strawberries growing on them. And he looks down, and the waves are swirling and frothing beneath him, and there are alligators in the water, and they're waiting to devour him the moment he hits the water. So he looks up, and he sees the tiger above, hungry. He looks mm -hmm. down, and he sees the crocodiles below. And he realizes that he's doomed either way. So what does he do? He, he looks to the bush, and he picks one of the strawberries and eats it. And the strawberry is very delicious. And <laughs> I think the moral of that story is that even if, as you say in the book, the world is burning, if things are at their worst, we can still enjoy the taste of a strawberry. My friend... Uh, Brian Zond is a pastor, and he just wrote a book that talks about a lot of this, and he says um, the burning bush in the Bible isn't the only bush that burns. Every bush is burning with the glory of God if we only have eyes to see it. Oh, it reminds me of, oh wait, hold on, I have to say something else intelligent while I'm pulling up a, a poem. <laughs> oh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Yes, that's the one. Um, yeah, every bush is a fire with God. Uh, what, is the, what is the phrase? But we... Um, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush of fire with God, but only he sees who takes off his shoes, the rest sit around and pluck blackberries. Yes, I love that so much. And um, yeah, I think I think that is that is true. And um, it reminds me also, I think sometimes people forget this, but um, Nathan yesterday, who of course I started the chapter with because I was talking about everyone's guilty, confession of guilty pleasures on his overthinkers page. Um, but he uh, <laughs> he posted this this verse from Ecclesiastes, which of course is a great one of the wisdom wisdom literature in um, Hebrew Bible. And um, he quoted the passage where it says, "Live happily with the woman you love through all the meaningless days of life that God has given you under the sun. The wife God gives you is a reward for your earthly toil." And he tagged his wife and said, "I guess Kelia is my reward for my meaningless earthly toil." Um, and you know, of course, he's he's teasing, but. Um, I think people forget that we almost take ourselves too seriously in the sense that even scripture, which gives us such a a picture of the meaning and narrative of life, um, also has Ecclesiastes in it where it's like, life is kind of confusing and weird and there will be lots of difficult things, uh, but God has put eternity in your heart and have a good time sometimes uh, because cause you're not going to fix everything, but there are still these delights and these gifts of God even in the midst of a, a world that is burning. You know, um, now, now this is kind of one aspect of, of enjoying things, but I want to say, uh, which is this kind of question of, is it okay to enjoy things? Um, we have the puritanical also, I, I'll just put in a little, uh, slide this in with a sense of puritanical kind of ways of seeing the world, um, which is kind of, you can't enjoy things. You have to be suspicious. You know, there's more important things to do. And it's funny because you noted that, that, that for you has come largely from the kind of more progressive <clears throat> or, you know, kind of ex-evangelicals, many, many, much of which is, is there, there are many good things about kind of yeah. that impulse for justice and whatever. But it's interesting because in the book that you sent me last, I think it was last year for Christmas. Wow. Time. Or was it my birthday? I can't remember. Um, Dominion. Oh yeah. Dominion. Yeah, he, he talks a bit about how, is, he talks about kind of the legacy of Christianity 
in um, in the Western world, and that he kind of argues that the puritanical um, kind of way of thinking is still present in the world, and that actually it's worked itself out in right now and more in the kind of progressive way of seeing the world and, and ticking off if you're if you're if you're right on these various topics and if you're doing things right. Um, so that that's just that's just a an interesting side note. Um, but okay, so we have we have these issues, right? We have the can you enjoy things when the world is burning? Um, to which I would say not only yes, but you should. Um, you know, can can you enjoy things uh, when there's other important things to do? There's other more spiritual, more justice oriented things to do, and I think we've we said yes. But I think there's also this um, this element of not wanting to enjoy things because of what people might think of you, right? That that you'll be um, judged or that you'll be seen as too nerdy or too enthusiastic or too whatever. And I think that something that both you and I have seen, um, and in some ways our friendship is a testimony to, is that actually enjoying things thoroughly can be a great foundation for friendship. Uh, it can be the place where mutual interest kind of make us be able to connect. And I think I thought about this because a lot of, you know, I wrote this book on friendship with my sister and mom a few years ago called Girls Club. Mm -hmm. And people would sometimes email me and say like, I just am so lonely. I so want friends. What should I do? And I think that we all have such a profound desire to connect that sometimes we like meet people and we're like, we just like throw all of our profound desires to be connected and be, you know, on them. And that's way too much pressure to, you know, to start a friendship with. Whereas I think if you can start a friendship on the basis of shared enjoyment, shared obsession over a topic, I think it makes it so much easier to connect with friends. I think C.S. Lewis talks about this. He has a, a great line where he says that friendship begins in the moment where one person says to another, you too, I thought I was the only one. Mm, yeah. Um, so has that been true for you? Has friendship been founded on mutual enjoyment and obsessions? I would say so, particularly on Twitter, because it's it's harder in real life because you're surrounded by people by proximity, not so much by interest. But mm. the Internet has done this nice thing where it organizes people according to common interest, mm. which is how I met you and, and mm. most of my other close circle friends on Twitter. And uh, I'll say this, and I think this is echoed in your book. You've said this also, that when, uh, when you talk about things in a positive way, in an enthusiastic way online, and that will attract people who are likewise positive and enthusiastic. But if you put a bunch of negativity and anger into the internet, then you're going to attract people who are similarly acrimonious and angry. Mm -hmm. And so what I've, what I've wanted to do, because I wanted friendship, I wanted connection and belonging, um, that seems to be a big theme in your book is belonging, is... I wanted to talk about things that I was really genuinely interested in so that I could find people who were really genuinely interested in those things. And so mm. I've met a lot of really lovely, nerdy, awkward, weird, wonderful people now. <laughs> yes. And I would say that, um, you know, and maybe this was a gift for me of being homeschooled. Um, it, I think it's better to be a little weird and nerdy and awkward and yes. have friends and be known and be loved than be so concerned that you be perceived as cool or as normal. I don't, I don't even know what normal is. You know what I mean? And so for people who are, <laughs> for, 
for people who are seeking friendship, I would say um, find something you really love and try to find other people who share that love, that that passion, that enjoyment. Um, because I think that's a good foundation. Now I'm going to pivot uh, because um, I've already mentioned that you and I have had over the years many kind of similar enjoyments. Um, I feel like we've had different epochs. You know, for a while it was Chesterton. Uh, uh, for a while, uh, a kind of ongoing theme is uh, mystery novels. Um, yeah, that, that never really goes away. Um, <laughs> and then we had Heschel for a while. And then I actually don't know if Heschel was before or after BTS. But um, I thought it would be fun to talk for a few minutes about um, the Korean boy band BTS, which is the guilty pleasure, the unguilty pleasure that I describe at the end of this chapter. Um <coughs> Because I think we we both separately discovered BTS, and um, and so I thought it would be fun to uh, to explore mutual enjoyment of ours, uh, modeling how others might also enjoy things unironically. Um, so I'll give my little spiel about how I encounter them, and you can give your little spiel, and then we can do a little bit of Jungian analysis of Map of the Soul, Persona, their album. Um, so BTS, I I discovered them last year. Actually, that's not true. I had a friend who tried to show me their music like probably four years ago um, when they were still not huge. And I was like, you know, I love you. She used to always show me lots of different music artists, musical artists. And I thought, I, I love you, but also I don't speak Korean. And why do you like this? I'm confused. Um, and so I, that kind of like, you know, passed through my brain. And then I went on my merry way and lived my life. And then last year... Last year was, I wrote most of this book, for the record, in lockdown, stuck, um, I, I was exiled from Scotland because the borders closed during the lock, I'd come down for Christmas to Oxford, and I, you know, I mean, I can't complain that much because it's like, oh, boo-hoo, I got stuck in Oxford, but, you know, I was, I was locked out of my house in Scotland, um, and I had to write, I had to write my book, had to write Aggressively Happy, and I was feeling kind of desperate about my PhD, um, and it was really cold and dark and you couldn't go, I couldn't even go get a coffee. You know, that even the coffee shops, takeaway coffee shops were closed. So I was in kind of a state. Um, and my friend Jenna was like, have you ever listened to BTS? And I was like, they, it's Korean. I don't speak Korean. I don't know what to tell you. Um, and she was like, no, 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 you really need to just go watch this video. They are big happy. Uh, she said, that's their vibe. Their vibe is big happy. And I thought, well, I need that because I'm grumpy and I can't go and get <laughs> coffee anywhere. So I went and watched their video, Dynamite. And then being the kind of nerd that I am, you know, once I like something, I then look it up on Wikipedia and then go, you know, deep dive. And so I learned I learned about this band and it's kind of interesting. You know, their unique K-pop's been around a long time, but they were on a totally separate uh, label that almost went bankrupt. And then they like rose mm -hmm. to, you know, international prominence. And uh, they've spoken for the UN. They've, they're, you know, they're just fascinating. And I was like, wow, they're incredible dancers. But then I read on one of their things that they had produced this album based on a book about Carl Jung. And I was like, what? Um, is this real? Because I'd always kind of had a background interest in Jung because my family had always been super into um, Myers-Briggs, which is kind of vaguely based on archetypal stuff and Jung. So then I went on a deep dive, and somehow, I don't remember in what way, but somehow I, it came out that you had also 
discovered them and were interested in the union bit. So how did you discover BTS and all that I, jazz? I weirdly discovered them through Carl Jung because um, huh. I, I stumbled on an essay that was talking about their, their newest album. I, I had known about them. I knew they were famous, not so much in America, but in the rest of the world. And uh, But um, I learned that they had based an entire album on Murray Stein's book, map of the soul which is about carl jung and so i thought i need to check out these guys who are in the world's biggest band and are apparently unions who, who knew <laughs> and that was a thing but um i think we're surprised as americans because we don't expect um pop singers to be um philosophers but mm-hmm. in korea and japan um pop singers are expected to read dense philosophy books and sing about them so <laughs> that's the thing and so, so they're not necessarily atypical in their own country, but they're atypical in, in Western mm-hmm. music. And uh, their success, I find really astonishing, because they're, by some metrics, the biggest band in the world since the Beatles. Yeah. And uh, they frequently get compared to, they're called the New Beatles. And... Mm-hmm. The, the fact that so many people seem to love them and, and not, not just enjoy their music, but actively be enraptured to find them as kind of a religious experience. Mm. And you read accounts of their concerts, and uh, um, it, it's like having a transcendent encounter. But that, you look at that, and then look at the fact that um, um, most people under the age of 30 or over the age of 30 do mm. not seem to have ever heard of them in this country which I find really baffling and not only that but when people do hear about them they tend to get really angry <laughs> it's well I that's why they, I bring them up they have that kind of similar like they're big happy and then people are just like yeah. oh I hate that you know <laughs> they're such happy boys um I, should, I was was I was say quickly their their um BTS is a Korean phrase that stands for the Bulletproof Boy Scouts, which I think is the cutest thing I have ever heard. They're adorable. Um, the The first anniversary of their uh, of their debut in 2014, they filmed a video of themselves. They were not at all famous yet. They were still struggling to make it, and so they filmed this very low key video in their apartment where they are cutting onions and making seaweed to go in a soup, and. And one of the boys says, I don't know how my mom did this. It's so difficult, but she made it look so easy. And that's the kind of vibe that they have. <laughs> They're just good, decent, happy boys who do um, these nice things for other people. And then suddenly, three years later, they were becoming the world's biggest band. And they were very humble about it because they had started out in such degradation. And, and they're always singing about how I don't know how long this will last. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how much of this is me and how much of this is my persona, etc. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like fame has really disconcerted them because they, they obviously want it to last, but they're not taking it lightly because they were so unfamous for so long. Anyway, but they're, they're, they radiate positivity and happiness. And I think people, who, as we said earlier, people who radiate positivity and happiness tend to enrage people. And so you have a lot of really grumpy people in America seeing pictures of them going i don't like them just i had never heard their music but i see the pictures i see what they're doing and i don't like it it, i will be a part of it (laughs) yeah i refuse to listen to it yeah it's it's a bit of a lucille blue i don't understand the question and i refuse to answer it um (laughs) 
Yeah, no, I know, but they really are. I mean, it's really funny because I, I got Joel really into them. I don't know if I've told you that. He was like, "What? No, no," you know. And then, and then he he watched some of their shows. I mean, part of it is just they're just so gifted. They're such skilled dancers. Um, good at it's everything. A, yeah, they're good at everything. And you know, some of them are more naturally skilled dancers than other. Like I think the RM yes. RM at the heart of it really is a nerd. Like they said, he. Um, uh, he got like one of the highest IQ scores, you know, when they did the tests. Did you know that? Yeah, it's interesting. And he could have done all these things, but so he's he's really more of the. I think he, probably he was the one who read Map of the Soul, you know, and wanted to do a an album on it. Yeah. Um, but no, they're so they're such gifted dancers, and it's funny. There's I think it was the Time interview with them where they were being named. I think they were named the Entertainer of the Year last year, maybe mm-hmm. or a couple years ago. Yeah, last and, year. And um. And the interviewer was like, people compare you to the Beatles. Like, how do you feel about that? And very humbly, but very straightforwardly, I think it was V was like, well, the Beatles didn't, didn't dance. Like, (laughs) (laughs) he was kind of like, I mean, he was like, cool. I mean, I guess they wrote songs and they sang them, but like, did they dance and also create like visual novels with their, I no, they didn't. And I loved that. That was just kind of this, like, I don't know. It, It was just really cute. So um, but yeah, I think I think they are a great example of um, of big happy and the weird negative reactions people can have to that. But I also mm-hmm. think, like you were saying, there is this kind of they have their own sense of the contingency of that fame. And uh, and in Map of the Soul, which we really should just record another longer podcast about because we could go on for another forty five minutes about that. Um, but they actually wrestle with that sense of uh, of the persona and. And in really intelligent ways. Also, I think the um, the music videos for that are part of what make it so artful because they use all this union imagery and, but really wrestling with that question of, you know, who am I? What do I put forward for the world? What are the unacknowledged parts of myself? Is it okay to desire mastery and fame and, and wealth? And they're just reckoning with that in ways that are are very impressive and interesting yeah. and yet also joyful yeah endearingly earnest so um so so bts is one of my uh okay i i have now on two occasions talked about bts to uh dominican monks here in oxford <laughs> <laughs> uh, because because blackfriars here um one of the old friars uh had a had this kind of ongoing letter writing back and forth with Jung um, that supposedly produced one of Jung's best works, The Answers to Job. Um, so I have, right. on numerous occasions, gotten to talk about a Korean boy band with um, a Dominican monk. And I feel that that is one of my great successes uh, in the UK. Um, so, okay, I also recorded an insane... Did you listen to my insane podcast? I did. I didn't think it was insane. I thought it was good. Well, maybe maybe I'll have to post it at some point. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, we I should do... just go ahead. And post. Yeah. Well, we should we should we should do one at length at some point on the on all this stuff because it's it's very fun and very nerdy. But we're drawing to um, when I would usually close my podcast. So I want to know, Bose. Um, I'm going to ask you what your most recent guilty pleasure is, with the caveat. That, as per the chapter, um, I think one should not feel guilty about guilty pleasures as long as they are, you know, 
innocent guilty pleasures. So what is what is something that you have been enjoying and that's been bringing you delight lately? I'll be honest, I really love Doctor Who. And not just the, the, the good Doctor Who, the, the good episodes. I like the really, really, really terrible, cheap, <laughs> low-budget Doctor Who from the 1970s. Uh, like, <laughs> I understand that Doctor Who is a show that has a lot of people and it has <clears throat> profound truths about the human condition, but I don't watch it for that. I, I watch it to see British men and, and sometimes women chasing around rubbery costumed monsters. <laughs> And like the older and the lower budget, the better. So the, the new Doctor Who is good. I, I don't disrespect that, but I really like the classic Who from the 70s and 80s. I love that. Um, I've been listening, my uh, connection to that, one of my things I've been enjoying lately it has been listening to David Tennant, who, of course, is one of the higher budget doctors. But he has a podcast. Did you know this is called David Tennant yes. Does a Podcast, where he just talks with various people? about stuff and I don't know if that's a guilty pleasure but I have been enjoying it lately as I putter around my house <laughs> so hobos it's always loved, lovely to chat um, thank you for coming on the show today and people should where can people mm -hmm. find your your tweets and your aggressively happy or aggressively whimsical perhaps you can write the follow up book uh, where can people find you <clears throat> at sketches by bows on twitter Hope you enjoyed this week's aggressively happy episodes don't forget to tune in next week and to pre-order your copy of aggressively happy a realist guide to believing in the goodness of life which you can find wherever books are sold have a lovely week and remember to rejoice though you have considered all the facts <laughs> <laughs>